Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Music and entertainment are coming back after the pandemic put most live events on hold. And I think that's kind of the general vibe is everyone is just so happy to be able to go out to live music and to share it with the people around them. On today's show, we check in with two Northern Colorado venues to see how the return is going. That and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. School board races across the country are heating up ahead of the November election as issues like COVID-19 vaccines, mask mandates, and teaching about race and American history gain prominence in local races. It's pretty common to see and hear protesters creating disruptions at school board meetings, whether they're in person or online. And at the same time, in some areas, a record number of candidates are vying for open school board seats. For more on what this looks like here in Colorado, we're joined by Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with some basics about school board elections here in the state. How often are they held? How many seats are usually open at any given time? So school board elections are held every two years on odd years. So these are offset from the congressional and presidential cycles. They tend to be pretty low turnout elections where people who are very passionate about an issue can make a difference by driving turnout for their people. And you typically see about half of the school board up for election. Um, Of course, there's odd numbers of people on the school board. So you might have three or four people up for election any given year, depending on the size of the board. Okay. And school boards are technically nonpartisan. This year, though, it just feels more politicized. There's more partisan interest in the races and backing of certain candidates. How are we seeing that involvement um, play out with races here in Colorado? The main thing that we've seen is Republican and Democratic Party folks using their platforms to um, endorse candidates, back slates, um, and and kind of direct money um, to candidates. And this is some, there's a phenomenon known as the nationalization of local politics where these really contentious issues around COVID response, um, masking, vaccine mandates, and then critical race theory and teaching of history kind of filter down to the local level. And, um, And we see people backing different slates trying to influence policy at the local level even if those issues are maybe not the most dominant issues um, most of the time for these bodies. Right. And I understand that in some districts, school boards have had some contentious meetings and comments from community members. Can you briefly explain what's been happening there? I I think probably the most dramatic example was in Mesa County, where the school board had to be, they had to, they stopped the meeting and had to be escorted by police to their car because um, the parents who were in attendance had become so angry at them. But we're seeing really contentious meetings, particularly around COVID protocols um, all over the state. Yeah. 
And there are just more people running for these positions that, you know, don't typically come with a salary and do seem to come with an awful lot more pressure and scrutiny than ever before. In the Poudre School District, for example, nine candidates are running for four open seats. And in the Denver School District, 12 candidates are vying for four seats. Is it unusual to have this much interest in these positions? I think the interest um, ebbs and flows, and we've certainly seen um, a high volume of candidates occasionally in the past. I think there's a couple things driving it. The pandemic and remote learning really brought the school system into people's homes and made people feel affected by these issues in a really intense way that they had not before. In some cases, we have school boards where there aren't a lot of incumbents running for re-election. And so that opens up opportunity that people feel like they wanna step into that. And then we do also see, again, this nationalization of local politics where people are motivated sometimes by issues that wouldn't have seemed as much of a local concern in the past. And I I do wanna note there's also, um, I guess, a socioeconomic divide here where in we are seeing this more in suburban communities that are predominantly white. So for example, in the Adams 14 school district, which is based in Commerce City, this is primarily a working class Hispanic district. They spent more time in remote learning and were slower to bring students back to the classroom than any other school district in the state. And they canceled their school board election because there wasn't enough interest. There were no, there were no candidates. So I think we're seeing this play out more intensely in communities that have a different sort of political and socioeconomic makeup. Right. Well, there's no denying this is currently a pretty toxic environment. Uh, Lots of hostility showing up during school board meetings. People who might normally consider running for a seat on their local school board might think twice now. And Erica, I'm wondering if educators are concerned about how this current environment might impact the future and the, the need for qualified candidates to run. Well, it's interesting because I feel like the job seems more thankless than it ever has. And yet we do seem to see a lot of interest in running. And we've been here before. I think I think sort of interest in school board politics kinds of ebbs and flows. And sometimes if people come in who are highly politicized, you end up with a backlash and and that can happen on either side. So I'll I'll just be really interested to see what happens on Tuesday and um, and and then what happens over the next two years as as these folks are in office. A lot of times people find that it is much easier to have strong rhetoric when you're running and a lot more difficult to govern and people tend to moderate their positions once they're actually in office. And so I'll just be really curious to see what happens. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Thanks so much for joining us, Erica. Thank you for having me. With the election now one week away, state officials say it's too late to return ballots by mail. Residents should instead drop off their ballots or vote in person at voter service centers, which are now open across the state. This week, we're taking a look at the three statewide questions to be decided on November 2nd. Today, it's Proposition 119. Students have faced some of their biggest challenges during the COVID-19 pandemic, and some policymakers think they need extra help making up for lost time in the classroom. Prop 119 would fund new tutoring programs, mostly by raising the price of retail marijuana. KUNC's Scott Franz has more. 
Many state lawmakers say the pandemic has created an alarming divide. Democratic Senator Rhonda Fields says students who had access to resources and technology were able to thrive, while those that didn't got left behind. We have many, many students that are missing. Thousands of students that are missing because they're not plugged in. So in March, she sponsored a bill setting up a website to help both parents and school districts prevent learning loss. It's basically a how-to guide for keeping students engaged during COVID. Now she's backing a ballot measure to secure millions of dollars for low-income students to help get tutoring outside of school. Maybe you might need a little bit more reinforcement as it relates to algebra or maybe as it relates to other uh, social sciences. If approved, Proposition 119 would do that by gradually raising taxes on marijuana sales by 5% over three years. Nonpartisan analysts at the Capitol say the Learning, Enrichment, and Academic Progress Program, or LEAP, would net more than $100 million for the program during the next fiscal year. And it has bipartisan support. We're in desperate need of figuring out answers for kids. Including Republican Hugh McKean of Loveland, who disagrees with Fields on many other policy issues. Kids in a geometry class here, most of them failed geometry during the hybrid year. And, and they desperately need help so that we are not finding that they are further and further and further behind. McKean says 119 would help support groups like the Boys and Girls Club and even private businesses that provide tutoring and other after-school activities. A board would be created to oversee the distribution of grant funding, something McKean likes because the state, he says, has a bad track record of spending marijuana taxes on schools. This initiative, I think, is the beautiful answer to say, let's make sure that that we put the money where our mouth has been and send it to programs that directly help kids. We see this as a scam, basically. That's Judy Solano. She's a retired school teacher and a former Democratic state lawmaker in Brighton. It's actually taking $21 million every year and more out of the state land trust funds which were specifically set, set aside, and it's in our constitution, that those funds be used only for public schools. Solano is talking about some of the fine print that's not getting as much attention as the tax hike. She says the new tutoring program should not come at the expense of millions of dollars schools have used in recent years to keep class sizes small and increase broadband. Colorado has one of the lowest funded public education systems in the nation. And why would you want to take money away from our public schools by diverting $21 million and more? There is no sunset a clause in this so it can go on forever. No, I mean, I think that there's a valid concern there. And I think what what really that conversation becomes is that the land trust side money is going to have to be backfilled by the state. McKean says strong revenue forecasts will allow the state to take on LEAP without cutting any money that goes directly to schools. And voters have shown a willingness to embrace so-called sin taxes before. Last year, they approved raising the price of cigarettes and vaping products to fund a variety of programs, including education. But some teachers aren't buying it. There's some unknowns about this ballot measure and, you know, some of the some questions around implementation and how will that work in our rural communities. Amy baca Olert leads the Colorado Education Association, the state's largest teachers union. Our board decided that neutral 
would be the best position. And that this is something that, again, the voters should dig into and and make a, a decision on. Meanwhile, Proposition 119 is already shaping up to be one of the most heated and personal clashes on the November ballot. The editorial board of the Denver Gazette blasted Solano for launching a, quote, dubious campaign to crush Colorado kids. It sounds really good to the average voter. Oh, we're going to, you know, take this syntax and we're going to use it for helping kids with their learning loss. Why aren't you just taking that money and giving it to the local school boards to make those decisions? The local districts. The authors of 119 did not return multiple phone calls and or emails to talk about their campaign. Instead, they've invested heavily in social media ads spotlighting their supporters, which include former governors from both parties. I'm Scott Franz. And if you're still filling out your ballot and want to dig deeper into the other statewide ballot questions, you can find more of our reporting at KUNC.org. Listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Live music and entertainment are coming back to life in northern Colorado after many venues were forced to close for months due to the pandemic. Most venues have extensive COVID-19 safety precautions in place, including requirements for face coverings and proof of vaccination or a negative test. So concerts and shows might look a little different than the pre-pandemic days, but local venues are carving a path forward. To get a better idea of how venues are faring and what the future might look like, we're joined by two folks who work in live entertainment in Fort Collins. Dylan Williams is production manager at The Comedy Fort in Fort Collins. Dylan, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Dalton Latham, general manager at the Aggie Theater in Fort Collins. He also moonlights as a guest bartender at the Comedy Fort. Uh, Dalton, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let me start with you, Dalton. The Aggie has a long history in Fort Collins. It was actually opened uh, as a furniture store in 1913. I did not know that. It's gone through a few different changes before becoming a music venue in 1994. It has a big place in Fort Collins history. Talk to me about what happened to venue operations during the pandemic. Basically, all of our staff was furloughed for almost 15 months. So only the core staff was available to um, actually come in and, and get time. So it was just a lot of maintenance and making sure that when the time came that everything was ready to, to ramp back up. A lot of cleaning. Uh, I definitely did my fair share of mopping and dusting. And when did you open back up? We actually opened back up um, briefly last October for about three weeks. We had shows and then the cases spiked really hard. So we were shut back down again until March. Um, and we started having what we called the intimate concert series, socially distanced shows. So we had tape throughout the venue with pods and tabletops. So everyone had to be seated and that gave them permission uh, as long as they were seated to remove their masks while they were at the table so they could eat and drink. Our capacity was cut down to a hundred over our usual 650. 
and then we were able to move on from that uh, after March, uh, once things started to open up as far as restrictions. Um, and we're back to full capacity. Yeah, because I mean, March, that was really before vaccines were, you know, rolled out in full force. What kind of policies do you have in place now? Right now, we're requiring uh, proof of vaccination, uh, full vaccination, at least 14 days out from your second dose or your single dose of Johnson & Johnson. We were accepting negative COVID tests for a short time. This was just kind of in the interim so that people had time to get their vaccines in between so they wouldn't have to you know, be immediately cut off from, from being able to come to shows. But we just used that as kind of a buffer grace period um, so that people could get their vaccines. And then it uh, went fully vaccinated on September 13th. And Dalton, I'm curious what kind of impact you think the pandemic has had on, say, local musicians, smaller artists, uh, musicians who maybe were just starting to get off the ground before it hit. It's been difficult for you know all the musicians, but especially people that were just starting to get a good footing in the music scene, because it takes a lot of momentum. Um, you kind of have to build up steam and be working these shows and opening for larger traveling artists in order to really kind of springboard into the situation in the scene and, and get that that um, knowledge base out. You know, the people know that what you're doing is is great and you're you're moving up. And so I feel like a lot of people that had that momentum all built up and were really chugging along. Now we're kind of having to start from square one again and, you know, make their rounds and, and really try and hit the springboard again. Did you lose any connections with artists or with any of the music labels you might work with? Uh, thankfully, uh, people are so excited to perform. They had a full year off, too. So there's been a lot of people producing music through that whole time and just waiting, kind of chomping at the bit, waiting for uh, venues to be ready. So thankfully, we didn't have much of a drop off as far as talent. We, we've had a really good reception as far as people that have just been working on their trade and are ripping and roaring, ready to go. Well, Dylan Williams, I, I'd like to turn to you now. I understand the Comedy Fort in Fort Collins actually opened during the pandemic. It opened in February of this year. Seems like a pretty big deal to open up a new venue during a pandemic. What was the idea behind opening this year? So David Rodriguez, who is the owner of the club, the club has been in the works for about four years. Um, so it was kind of just unfortunate timing. And you know, with the shutdown of Hody's Half Note, which was the venue that we took over, it all kind of fell in place perfectly in a weird sense. So he kind of just decided to go for it. He had a good support group of patrons and people who were just right behind him during the whole entire process. So we went for it. And how has it been so far? It's been awesome. At first, we were at, you know, limited capacity. We implemented a QR code system for drink ordering. So essentially, all the tables have QR codes on them because technology is great. <laughs> and uh, so you're able to easily just order through your phone and the servers come out, which also helped with limited exposure to our staff and our patrons. And the shows were great, similar to what Dalton said. You know, we had so many people who just wanted to perform after getting a year off. And then on the customer side of it, we had so many people who were just deprived of live entertainment that they just wanted to see whatever. So when we first opened up, pretty much most of our shows were sold out at limited capacity. 
Dylan, the Comedy Ford is requiring that attendees show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test, and you're also requiring face masks. I'm wondering how your audience has responded to that. For the most part, we've had pretty positive feedback. There's obviously been a few situations where people have pushed us back a little bit on the vaccination policy. Um, But all of our staff has been vaccinated since March, and our patrons are very understanding of the policy. And I personally haven't seen a huge dip in uh, people coming through. The face mask uh, situation that's just in compliance with Larimer County at this time, we did apply to be a verified vaccine facility. So hopefully if we get approved with that, we can just go with no mask, but still the same vaccine policy. I'm wondering what you see as the role of comedy during a pandemic. Sure. I think uh, laughter is just an important human need. The ability to be able to laugh in a situation is very healing in a lot of aspects. And for comics, you know, that's their livelihood is being able to make people laugh. And for the people in the crowd, you know, you don't know what they're going through, you know, with their everyday life and the whole last year. And just being able to have a brief moment of uh, like solace and just being able to laugh and enjoy your night without having to think too much about the everyday struggles of life. I think that's just really important. And I also understand you do some comedy yourself. Um, How has the pandemic impacted your own comedy? For during the pandemic, I didn't really do a whole lot. I did a few Zoom shows and a couple parking lot shows, um, but not not the same as performing in front of a live audience. And uh, it, it, it was trying to find the right word. It, it wasn't nice that the pandemic happened, but it was kind of nice to be able to take some time off and reflect on everything and then being able to come back and be more confident with joke telling and just all that kind of stuff and just being excited to get on stage. When you're in comedy and you do it so much, you kind of almost forget how fun it is and being able to take like kind of a year off and then get back up on stage. It just like really like brought that spark back. Well, I want to wrap up by just asking you both about the future. Dalton, you know, how do you sort of picture, you know, the future of live music? And, you know, when you talk to people at shows now, what are they saying about coming back to live music? I think it's extremely hopeful right now. I'm really excited to see where live music progresses from here. During the pandemic, um, the folks that were doing music or working in the music industry just to collect the check, you know, maybe their their heart wasn't all the way in it. They found other things to do. Um, so now that we're back, um, that is one of the, the positive things that came out of the pandemic is now we really have the people involved that their entire heart and soul is live music. So I do feel like that's really going to solidify the community and live music moving forward. And as far as talking to people at shows, we've just gotten great feedback. You know, everyone music really important for not only entertainment, but I feel like it's very healing. Um, and it's, it's, it's great for people that want to get out and kind of forget about their week or, you know, forget about um, maybe some tough things that are going on in their life. So it, it, it's really healing for, for people to be able to come out. And I've spoken with so many people that I'm making my way around the room, just seeing how everybody's doing. I'm like, how do you, how do you like in the show? And the, I've, I've heard from so many people, they're like, we don't even know this artist. We just saw that there was a concert and bought tickets. And it's, it makes me feel amazing, you know, um, just that people were so, 
so happy to have live music back. Um, and I think that's kind of the general vibe is everyone is just so happy to be able to go out to live music and to share it with the people around them and still feel safe. And, you know, we take a lot of precautions to make sure that we aren't, um, you know, making it a, a possibly dangerous situation for, you know, not only the customers, but uh, all our artists and all of my employees, um, you know, because these artists are trying to trying to get back into the tours, you know, one positive test. And that really puts a huge, huge break in their tour. So it's very positive, even with the with the restrictions and stuff. Uh, we've gotten such great feedback. A lot of people are thankful for stuff like that to uh, to make them feel a little bit more secure in the event as well. And Dylan, how about for you? How do you feel when you think about the future of, you know, live comedy in Fort Collins? I'm also very hopeful. You know, Fort Collins hasn't had a comedy club in quite a long time. And seeing the response, even opening during a pandemic, how just grateful people were for some form of live entertainment and then continuing with our new vaccine policy, like people are similar to what Dalton said, just having a sense of feeling more secure in their environment. And, um, you know, we're getting a lot of traction at the club. We have a lot of really big names that have reached out and want to come and perform and, and record their albums at our club. And I, I just think it's, uh, it's going to be a really exciting future. And um, I, I expect it to be in a really exciting future. Dylan Williams is production manager at the Comedy Fort in Fort Collins. Dalton Latham is general manager at the Aggie Theater and occasional guest bartender at the Comedy Fort as well. Dylan, Dalton, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, state Republicans spent the last legislative session trying, unsuccessfully, to strip Governor Jared Polis of the broad emergency powers he's used to lead the state through the pandemic. Now, conservatives are hoping voters will approve Amendment 78, a plan to make the executive branch a little less powerful. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.